Welcome to Season of the Bitch, the leftist feminist podcast that is here to help you through the apocalypse. Today we have Laura, Zoe, Bianca, and Julia. And today we are talking about living under climate catastrophe. What does that really mean for us? What's happening around the world and how, of course, capitalism is the root of this catastrophe. And we just wanted to say ahead of time that we totally get that this topic is very heavy because the idea of understanding climate change is to be in mental crisis. And I guess like the thing that I have found to be helpful and I think what we're going to try to like steer towards at the end is, you know, understanding the things we can control, understanding the things that are now no longer in our control because of whatever tipping points we've hit and that and because of that, how to help prepare ourselves and our communities, particularly the most vulnerable communities for what's happening. (laughs) grim but we're gonna i mean it is the the reality we live in so we're gonna try to get through it together yeah full disclosure i did just take an out of van um i also texted the co-host when working on this episode being like is anyone else having panic attacks so you know (laughs) the answer um, all of us just emphasized it we were just like yes yes we're all having panic attacks but here we are producing this content for you all so (laughs) Um, but yeah, so we've done a couple episodes, uh, before related to eco-socialist feminist thought, but if you miss those or need a little reminder of kind of how these things are connected, I just wanted to read a brief quote that just kind of like ties it together. Um, this is from a large book called Reading Feminist Theory. It's boring, wouldn't recommend. Here's one good quote though. Marxist and socialist ecofeminists see environmental problems as rooted in a specific mode of production, capitalism. They view capitalism's insatiable drive for private profits as the major source of environmental degradation. This does not mean that there were no pre-industrial forms of environmental despoliation. However, these pre-modern environmental problems pale beside the massive destruction of the environment that has occurred over the past few centuries since the birth of industrial capitalism. Yeah. Absolutely. You know, <laughs> if we are nothing but consistent that capitalism is the problem since day one of this podcast and men, <laughs> you know, <laughs> it's just a little bit of both of those things. But uh, right now we're going to I mean, honestly, like a lot of the the drivers of this of these businesses are uh, obviously men. OK. Uh, But because we are coming off of a holiday weekend, you know, even though it's definitely a holiday that I'm sure none of us on this podcast celebrate, I want to start by talking about what the fuck fireworks mean for the environment. As a national average, uh, culled from 315 different testing sites, 4th of July fireworks introduce 42% more pollutants into the air than are found on a normal day. Part of that increase is a spike of emissions of perchlorate, perchlorate. Yes. Okay. Sorry. Uh, emissions of perchlorate. That's right. Okay. <laughs> <laughs> of perchlorate, a chemical that the EPA or Environmental Protection Agency says 
uh, quote, may disrupt the thyroid's ability to produce hormones needed for normal growth and development, end quote. The smoke from these events are comparable to that from wildfires, and these stupid nationalistic displays create additional health risks for community already disproportionately burdened by air pollution and environmental racism. So urban ones with higher rates of asthma, elderly residents, and greater percentage of children under 10. And of course, because cities are more diverse, these events disproportionately affect people of color and other marginalized communities. I mean, please don't get me started on how the entirety of the 4th of July is just absolutely fucked. But as we were talking about the environment, it would be ridiculous not to mention the absolutely terrible statistics on pollution related to this holiday. Yeah, I think also worth mentioning when talking about the environmental ramifications of fireworks that they scare birds literally to death. um, And I'm sure other like small animals as well. Um, So yeah, just just really bad time. That's so horrifying. I had no idea about any of that, especially the bird part is so sad. Like it's so sad. Honestly, don't Google it. Yeah, that's that sounds horrible. Like photos came up. Oh, it was really bad. Yeah. Oh God. Um, just take I my mean, word for it. Yeah, I, I'm taking your word for it for sure. I just wanted to say that I'm very excited to have a new, like, morally superior reason as to why Hell fireworks yeah. are bad. Um, <laughs> I feel like I, I mostly just find them boring. But my personal philosophy is that if you want to see a firework, you need to light it yourself. So, like at home DIY fireworks. I'm fine with that, especially if you're using them to like, I don't know, light a cop car on fire. Just throwing out some ideas here. For example. Um, Just as an example, not something (laughs) I've done, uh, not encouraging anyone else to do it. Um, But do not try this at home. (laughs) Unless. Yeah. (laughs) Laura is winking into the camera. (laughs) Winking into the microphone if you can hear it. You couldn't hear it. Yeah. Yeah. (laughs) Um, But yeah, I feel like the giant kind of like corporate fireworks displays are just like so loud and like they're all the same. I just don't really know anyone who's like, I would be really sad if this didn't happen. And I know a lot of people who are like, these are very annoying or like trigger my PTSD or scare my pets or whatever. Like there's just so many reasons why they're already bad. So adding their terrible impact on the climate, I'm like, yes, let's get rid of this shit. No more corporate fireworks. Absolutely. Well, I would like to say that also the people in my neighborhood set off the big fireworks like in the middle of the street. And a that's so intense. All of these houses around me are like such old houses that they could burn down so easily. Mm. And I've seen like the the house two, two doors down for me did burn down. Not from fireworks, but, like, from <laughs> other things. Nice. They're just, like, very flammable. And also, like, the dog who lives in my house gets so scared and mm-hmm. sad that he pees himself because he literally, oh. like, can't handle it. So, or therm. you know, do some fucking sparklers if you're going to do shit. Like, yeah, sparklers are good. I mean, yeah, please also, like, observe fire safety. Don't, like, light your whole neighborhood on fire. Yes. That would be very sad for everyone. Very true. Yes. Um, speaking of fire, 
I thought we could just dive right into a subcategory of these catastrophes that we've seen recently, which is pipeline leaks and major bodies of water on fire. So on July 3rd at 5.15 a.m., a circular inferno, like it literally looks like the Eye of Sauron, formed in the middle of the Gulf of Mexico. It isn't clear what kind of damage was done to the marine life in the area or the air quality of the area. What we do know is a com- is the company Petróleos Mexicanos or Pemex, Mexico's state-owned oil monopoly, controls the pipeline. In a complete contradiction to what was observed in the viral videos and photos of the incident, Angel Carizales, executive director of Mexico's Security, Energy, and Environment Agency, said on Twitter that the leak, quote, did not cause a spill. Uh, the president of Mexico, Andres Lopez Obrador, said in his 2018 election campaign that he wanted to strengthen all of Mexico's oil industries. Of course, many people in Mexico are adamantly critiquing his perspective on this, and that's just been exacerbated by this latest incident. Pemex basically has always been riddled with debt mismanagement and corruption. Um, in 2019, Pemex carried $107 billion in debt, making it the world's most indebted oil company. And the following year, a former chief, Emilia Lozoya Austin, was arrested in southern Spain on charges of tax fraud and bribery. So basically, you have corruption on corruption on capitalism, setting fire to the oceans and exacerbating climate catastrophe. So literally barely 24 hours later, I think it was like 30 hours later, a strong explosion took shook the Caspian Sea area where Azerbaijan uh, has a myriad of offshore oil and gas fields. The oil company in the region, Sokar, said, quote, preliminary information indicated that it was a mud volcano and noted that none of its platforms were damaged in the explosion, which like we'll get into. This is just capitalists being capitalists. So this led me into a deep dive on what the hell mud volcanoes are. Um, apparently, they are very common to the, the region in Az- Azerbaijan, <laughs> Azerbaijan, and when they explode, they spew both mud and flammable gas. There are hundreds of mud volcanoes in this area, and they are caused by water being heated deep within the earth, mixed with rocks and minerals. And when they erupt, this mixture forced to the surface can catch fire. And while it's unclear how a mud volcano can catch fire naturally, one theory is that it happens when a mixture of flammable gases is ignited by spark from rocks colliding together. So basically, we obviously cannot rule out that a leak somewhere in these oil fields uh, was led to this mud volcano explosion. Yeah, I feel like we are going to talk a lot on this episode about things that like happen naturally, but are made a million times worse by capitalism and human activity. Um, But I want to say it's like very, very likely that the oil extraction operations there contributed to this explosion in some way, just because like drilling into the ocean floor is such an intense process. And like, it can literally cause earthquakes because of the damage that it does to the earth. So I feel like that is rocks shaking and could include like setting off this thing. Um, And I was looking into this and a similar mud volcano eruption happened in Indonesia in 2007. 
And in that case, the oil company involved said that the eruption was due to an earthquake that had happened earlier. But then like after some time had passed and scientists had time to actually study what caused it, it became clear that drilling was responsible. So I kind of have a feeling that we might find out at some point in the future that drilling was the cause of this. Um, but regardless of that, offshore drilling is just such a cartoonishly evil process. Um, I just wanted to take a moment to kind of highlight how wild it is that this happens at all. Oil and natural gas extraction being controlled by companies that are just like operating to make the most profit they can and have no interest in like protecting the environment is a horrifyingly evil situation. In addition, about 100 oil and gas extraction employees die every year because of industry accidents. And this is partly because companies cut corners and they don't fully follow safety regulations. Um, most oil companies have to have like a fund set aside for like to pay for the accidents that they know are going to happen. It's like a law that they have to have like a million dollars or something set aside for this. Um, and it's also just because like this is an incredibly dangerous process. So I was reading one study that suggested that based on the number of workers in this industry, that means that over like a lifetime career, about one out of every 100 employees die. So it's extremely likely that you or someone you know will not survive an entire career as like a drilling employee who's out on a rig. Yeah, absolutely. And I just wanted to mention because this particular type of extraction is kind of uh, was heavily covered at one point. Um, I know Naomi's Naomi Klein's book, um, This Changes Everything, gets into it a lot. And particularly how the reason why they have so much funds to take risks is because uh, the investors in their stock invest based on projected oil that they will find, not oil that they have already found. So there was actually a big, big movement to divest from the oil industry because we thought at the time the environmental movement thought at the time that this would be a possible way to stop these like very dangerous types of drilling from happening but actually that divestment practice backfired because the kind of normal people like they're still conservative scum but like more normal everyday kind of people pulled out of the oil industry and then really intense risky market people moved in in droves to the industry, which essentially pushed the oil companies to dig deeper and in riskier, aka like more fucked up ways. And I think divesting can work if we ensure that people won't fill the void and invest up in messed up ways. But particularly in this industry, it's been a bit of a shit show. And it seems like so far, um, the most powerful tactics, which we're about to get into against like different drilling and uh, things like that have been these more direct action approaches. But of course, those lead to massive risks to those on the front lines, not to mention the intense burnout and harm that can come from putting yourself in that type of risk daily. Yeah, that's a really good point. I feel like, you know, there's like no way that the environmental movement could have predicted that oil companies would just find like another more horrifying evil thing to do but it's good to know that that's like not really a tactic that we should be focusing on anymore and i definitely think there are other strategies we can use that we're going to talk a little bit about so in terms of like dangers to workers specifically it's kind of like literally every other industry where it's working class people who are mostly people of color 
who are the employees who end up dying in these types of accidents and like the higher paid executives who are like in their offices are getting rich off this industry they're fine and they're sending out their employees to die while also wreaking devastation on the earth i think this is important to kind of focus on because sometimes like when we're talking about environmental activism people can respond by questioning like what will happen to people who work in these industries what will happen to people who might are in mining or drilling or whatever um and i think a really important part of the answer is that these are already terrible jobs that kill people and completely devastate people's bodies and lead to cancers and illnesses um, that last a lifetime. And we should really be fighting to get rid of these jobs for human rights reasons, just as much as environmental ones. As we see with the Pemex pipeline that Laura was talking about, these dangers also extend to a lot of other aspects of the oil industry besides just the drilling process, including transport. So the construction of pipelines itself can disrupt the existing environment, but on top of that, they experience frequent leaks and spills that destroy wildlife, they contaminate water and like agriculture in the surrounding area, and generally just cause devastation for the people living near them or who rely on those sources for their food and water, which can extend way beyond just like one community. Um, in the US, these projects have also damaged sites of historic and religious significance, particularly for indigenous folks who live in the area. Um, and again, this is an area where like oil companies will literally have money set aside. They legally have to because everyone knows that these pipelines are going to leak. And that's just like a thing that happens. I just have to say, like in our environmental program, we learned also that like it's not a matter of if a pipeline will leak. It's a matter of when, like literally statistically, they're yeah. just so common. It's like, I don't know. It's just wild that we're just like, yeah, that's just going to happen. And that's fine. Let's keep <laughs> building them. Right. <laughs> um on a slightly more positive note, I did want to say that over the past year, we've actually seen a surprising, in my opinion, amount of wins in this area. So there have been three major pipeline projects that were proposed to be built that ended up being canceled thanks to some really tireless activism led by local organizers. Love um, to see it. Yeah, it's, it's like, honestly, I am... I mean, it's great. It's like really surprising to me because it's been so long that I feel like I just like never thought that we would see this at all. But so first in July 2020, the Atlantic Coast Pipeline was announced as canceled. It was planned to run through West Virginia, Virginia and North Carolina. And despite receiving approval from the Supreme Court, it was a 7-2 vote. So as usual, fuck the Supreme Court. Um, there was so Fuck much the public Supreme court. <laughs> yeah, like literally it's like, you know, not, it wasn't even like a close vote. It's just like, basically everyone was like, yeah, great. Build Ugh. it. Um, but yeah, there was so much public opposition and like grassroots opposition that the companies responsible withdrew the project because they basically thought it was bad PR. So that's great. Um, then last month we saw an official end to the Keystone XL pipeline, which was planned to run from Alberta, Canada through South Dakota to Nebraska. Um, this has been an ongoing fight that people have probably heard about. There were protests while Obama was in office and he revoked the permission that they needed to build, like the Canada part has mostly been built and they need to like cross the US Canada border. So Obama took away that permit and then Trump granted that permission back and they started building. 
they built about 10% of it. And then after Biden was inaugurated in January, he took those permissions away again. Um, I would also like to note that I'm not in any way thanking Biden for this. To be it's, clear. Yeah, just to be clear, no thanks to any man, certainly not Biden. <laughs> but um, it's really like due to the work of environmental activists. And a lot of the credit goes specifically to indigenous activists who have been opposing this and similar projects for decades. Um, but finally, in June, the oil company involved was basically like, this is getting to be too much work. It's costing us a lot of money. Like, we just give up. We don't even want to build this anymore. We will stop trying to build across the border. And then just last week, the planned Bihalia pipeline, I don't know if I'm pronouncing that right, was canceled. Uh, the company is claiming that they're voluntarily making this decision, quote, primarily due to lower U.S. oil production resulting from the COVID-19 pandemic. I think this is obviously bullshit because there has been a huge coalition of activists opposing this project yeah. in court and in the streets. Like it's been a really big like coalition effort um, and that must have played a role in this decision. But I do think it's possible that the pandemic made the company fold like a bit easier than they would have done otherwise, which is good. Like if we can have a small win out of the horror of the pandemic, I think one of them would be the fact that people are driving less, like yeah. way, way less in the early days of the pandemic. Driving was down about 50% across the US. Um, and that has meant that there is less demand for oil and that seems to be having some sort of impact on these companies. Um, but even without that, there has also just been some really tireless environmental activism and coalition building over the past few years. and. I think hopefully we're like starting to see some lasting results of that work. Um, obviously the protests around the Dakota Access Pipeline did a lot to really push anti-oil company activism into the mainstream. And like there was a ton of press coverage and that effort wasn't able to stop Dakota Access itself, but it's clearly had some further reaching impacts. So direct action gets the goods y'all. Mm -hmm. Like we, I think we really are seeing the result of at this point, literal decades of organizing around this. Um, and it seems like we're finally getting to a point where opposition to these really horrific, destructive, as Laura said, like they literally will leak at some point, um, these projects, it's finally coming under some scrutiny in more mainstream US media and politics. So we're far from being in like a good place, but I do think it's like worth noting that we haven't seen any like this type of activism really work on this level in a long time. And yeah. like, it is encouraging to see that. It definitely is. And not to bring it back down, <laughs> but to round out our fires caused by chemical fuckery, basically, uh, uh, section. Uh, the pipeline leak in the Gulf of Mexico also came on the same day that an explosion and fire at Romania's largest oil refinery killed one person and injured five others. And again, those explosions, similar to fireworks, send shit tons of additional air pollution as well. In the same day, in Thailand, an explosion at a chemical factory in the outskirts of Bangkok killed one person and left at least 33 injured as well. So Thai officials evacuated thousands of people and it housed 50 metric tons of hazardous chemicals. Yeah. 
Um, so in other recent events that are uplifting to the soul, um, just kidding, <laughs> just kidding, big Doomer episode. <laughs> it's the doom scrolling of an episode. <laughs> so anyway, um, you're probably familiar. There's been some heat waves recently, specifically um, the heat wave in the Pacific Northwest of the United States. So um, I'm not going to over too many stats, uh, mainly because it depresses me. But in Portland, Oregon, um, they broke the highest temp that they've had for three straight days at a peak of 116 degrees. Um, these heat waves caused a total of 100 related deaths just in Oregon alone. Um, the people that were most heavily impacted by heat waves are those who are currently unhoused, as well as um, people who do have places to live but are unable to afford air conditioning um, and access things that, you know, help when it's 116 degrees out. Um, this leads to what's known as climate apartheid, which I'm pretty sure we've talked about on the podcast before, but um, essentially means that as climate catastrophe continues, it will most heavily impact poor people, people of color, and disabled people. Um, like Julia mentioned, this can be the people that are often doing as well as the people that are most likely to live in areas where um, they're highly impacted by the ramifications of, of climate catastrophe. Um, so yeah, meanwhile, the ruling class will pretty easily be able to escape the brunt of climate catastrophe by sending themselves to space and also just living in their cozy air-conditioned apartments. Um, yeah, so even the United Nations, which, like, granted, generally not amazing. Um, <laughs> I'll say it. Uh, but they have recognized that the world is going rapidly towards a state of climate apartheid. The UN predicts that around 250,000 people will die every year of climate-related causes from... 2030 to 2050 and by 2050 around 140 million people will be displaced um, around the globe due to climate. Yeah on the topic of climate apartheid I wanted to make the connection between what we're talking about and abolition. The as I was just like thinking about this episode it made me think of something that Ruth Wilson Gilmore said which is that quote abolition must be both green and red. What she means by that is um, this is from a podcast that she did for The Intercept um, about abolition. I thought it was really excellent. But in that podcast episode, she says, quote, abolition has to figure out ways to generalize the resources needed for well-being for the most vulnerable people in our community, which will then extend to all people. And that includes things like environmental resources. So if we define abolition as like the elimination of all systems that either are or imitate carcerality, then this in turn would include eliminating systems that expose people to physically unlivable situations. So then turning to the climate crisis, I think we're witnessing the ways that climate degradation and climate change lays bare the disparate ways that it affects the rich and the poor in many cities in the US. Uh, the infrastructure in those cities to shield people from extreme conditions like extreme heat simply isn't there for the most vulnerable communities. So I think we can see this in what's happening in the Pacific Northwest. We saw power lines breaking, systems that provide electricity and therefore cooling, like literally melting due to the heat um, because the cities weren't prepared. And these are infrastructural issues that governments should have allocated financial resources to in order to prevent catastrophes like this. 
So like instead we're seeing things like privatizing entities that provide these necessary resources like electricity, like cell service. So then when you like privatize these necessary resources, like the companies would then opt into the forces of free market capitalism, like as we've been saying throughout this episode. So then in turn, it takes away those necessary resources from from poor communities. So I just wanted to make that added note. Hell yeah. Thank you for doing that. In that specific heat wave, uh, there also are estimated 1 billion shellfish and other sea creatures on the Canadian coast on the Salish Sea, Salish, Salish, I'm not sure, sea coastline, uh, which included mussels, starfish, and barnacles. Um, And a lot of uh, shellfish are kind of like the trees of the oceans, like they help maintain oxygen levels in the oceans through what they do. Um, But also on heat, uh, from a more global perspective, in India, tens of millions of people have been experiencing life-threatening heat with daily temperatures in New Delhi consistently reaching more than 100 degrees Fahrenheit. In Iraq, protests have been going on in Basra, Baghdad, and other cities as widespread power outages darkened homes and cut off water supplies to millions of people um, as temperatures topped 120 degrees Fahrenheit. And on the opposite end of this, I did just want to remind us of the ice storm that Texas experienced uh, late spring, so not very long ago. Um, which had also terrifying ramifications for low-income folks because in Texas apartments, they don't have heat because you don't normally need it. Um, And also, they experience a lot of issues specifically in Texas around heat in the summer because Texas's power grid uh, has like a specific fuckery with it where it's like tied into one one business. I, I like just was remembering this as we were recording, so I don't want to say miss say the wrong things but the texas grid is fucked for sure yeah yeah uh and yeah we'll we'll talk about grids a little bit yes. later on as well There's totally some, not texas specifically but but yeah yeah i feel like i saw a tweet last week when like some of these heat waves were at their worst um basically just someone saying and unfortunately i can't remember who it was that like we're getting to a point where heat and air conditioning are becoming like a basic human right essentially or they should be because during certain periods of the year if you don't have either heat or ac depending on where you are you're at risk of death from the extreme temperatures um and that's just going to keep expanding um So moving on to another thing that we now need, um, like, to address as a human rights issue. We're Um, all going to have a group therapy after. (laughs) 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 Come come to the Discord if you need to uh, talk it out after listening to this episode. Truly, truly. Um, But, yeah, so I wanted to talk a little bit about the wildfires that have been getting noticeably worse over the past few years um, as our former West Coast correspondent and still in spirit. Um, It seems like every year in California, people are like, are the fires getting worse? Like, is it just me? It seems like it's getting worse and it's lasting longer. And it is definitely not just you. Unfortunately, rising temperatures and longer droughts due to climate change make these fires burn hotter and longer with each year that passes of the earth heating up. 
Um, so, you know, without changes, this is something that we will continue to see get worse, unfortunately. Um, this is obviously not limited to the US. People may have heard about the devastating fires in Australia as well. And I'm sure people are aware of the massive fires in the Amazon rainforest in Brazil. Um, those aren't solely due to rising temperatures. There are also fires set by humans to clear land after logging for timber, um, but they are also made worse by global warming. And the overall point is just that this is a global problem and it's one that will continue to expand to new areas as there are more places in the world that are hot and dry enough for wildfires to burn. Um, one especially horrifying thing that I wanted to talk about that I like just learned about while researching this episode is that the Arctic region of Alaska is actually becoming like they're having a ton of wildfires because of the dryness. So usually the fires start when it's warmer, but then they can continue even after winter starts and they burn like the soil and like natural material, even while they're buried underneath the snow, which is like just so dystopian. It's like how, why, I don't really understand how it works, but yeah, wow. because they continue burning, even like buried underneath ice, and then they can like start up again and get bigger once the weather gets warmer, they're called zombie fires, which, you know, is like about as good as it sounds. <laughs> um, it's bad. So, you know, this is again, something that's being exacerbated by climate change and melting Arctic ice. Um, so within the continental US, most wildfires happen on the West Coast in California, Oregon, and Washington. Um, and historically, communities indigenous to the West Coast would do controlled burns, essentially like figuring out places to set fires so that certain smaller areas would burn in like a more contained way. So in themselves, wildfires aren't negative. They're actually just a natural part of the life cycle of a forest. Um, and if you're joining us for our upcoming breeding group, when we're reading Breeding Sweetgrass, I'm sure we'll talk about this more um, because Robin Wall Kimmerer talks about this a lot in her book. But um, essentially wildfires are needed. They remove older species of trees and plants and things that are dominating so that like younger trees and species that need cleared areas to grow can spring up and like the life cycle of the forest can continue. But the problem is that especially like since the Americas were colonized and especially since people have been living and building homes in areas that are very wildfire prone, there's been more of this movement to like really suppress fires, um, which means that when wildfires do start, there's more for them to burn, they're bigger, more dangerous, they last longer. Um, and then adding to that, just like the overall nature of global warming, which causes more extreme temperatures and weather. So there's like longer droughts and things like that. It's a recipe for disaster. Um, so I wanted to talk a little bit about some of the impacts that these fires can have. First, and perhaps most obviously, they destroy more trees than would naturally be removed. So that means fewer plants to remove carbon dioxide from the atmosphere, which contributes to global warming. And then the fires themselves also release large amounts of carbon dioxide and other toxins that worsen climate change and also just literally make it hard for people to breathe. Um, this is especially an issue for people who have underlying lung and immune conditions and for unhoused folks who often don't have a safe place to go inside when the air is literally toxic to breathe. 
Um, so this is kind of what I mean when I say that this is a human rights issue. It's like not having access, having access to safe air to breathe is becoming something that's not like a guarantee and is something that, I mean, governments should be providing, but since they're not, um, people are kind of relying on mutual aid efforts to step in. So in the past couple of years, especially as things have gotten really bad, there have been some great local efforts like to distribute fire safety masks to people who are living outdoors and don't have them. But it's really like a matter of public health and something I think it would be fair to expect local governments to fund as a bare minimum of kind of addressing this crisis. Um, I also just like, I don't know, when we were putting together this episode, I was thinking about how growing up in LA, like other cities might have snow days for school. We had fire days where the air quality was too bad to go outside. Um, so it would be like gym class would be canceled or sometimes school would be entirely canceled because it would like wouldn't be safe to travel to get there. Um, but for most adults who have to go to work, especially people who work outside, like farm workers and construction workers, there's no way around it. Like you just know that you're making yourself sick and you have to go outside to go to work and make money and survive in other ways. Um, there was a really horrifying investigative report that came out during that period in the Bay Area where the sky was like literally orange. Um, people might've seen photos of this. It looked like very dystopian and kind of like the sky was on fire. Um, but basically like rich people who had hired like house cleaners and yard workers and stuff still made them come into work. And many of those folks take the bus and walk long distances to get to these wealthy neighborhoods where they work. Um, so this is just like a huge health risk and another example of how working class people are more at risk of these conditions. Um, and these kind of like quote unquote fire days when the air is literally too toxic to breathe safely and it's not safe to be outside for long periods of time are getting more frequent and we really need a more coordinated government response, I think. But failing that, there are a lot of local mutual aid efforts doing this work. And if you live in one of these areas, I really recommend checking them out because they are doing some really impressive work given that there is this gap of like not, these needs are not being met. Yeah, I also um, just wanted to talk a little bit about the labor that is used um, for, for the wildfires. Um, especially tying back to what Bianca was talking about with abolition, um, that it's very common for incarcerated people to be trained as firefighters for, um, yeah, working on putting out these fires. That is, of course, a very dangerous job. And also one that if they are paid at all, they're paid in literal pennies for. Um, so essentially slave labor um, being used to put them out. Wanted to read um, an extremely dystopian headline from last summer that has is seared into my brain, and so it will now be seared into all of yours. Um, from CNN that says California faces an inmate firefighter shortage because the state released them early due to pandemic. Um, first of all, we at season of the bitch don't support referring to incarcerated people as inmates. That was merely quoting the headline, yeah. um, but also <laughs> just like. I don't know. I think it just stuck with me so heavily. Just like there's a shortage of firefighters because a lot of people were released early. That's the good part due to a global pandemic. It's just like, 
Yeah. Just wow. like a full headline of fuckery. Um, yeah. It's the, I, this isn't like funny, but it's just so dark. Like I remember when this happened and I had literally like forgotten, like I blocked this out of my memory because it was just like ev- every horrible crisis converging into one just like terrible thing. Yeah. Yeah. It's, it's bleak. Um, so yeah, pretty much just wanted to acknowledge how intertwined yes. issues of labor and incarceration are with environmental issues. No, absolutely. Yeah. Also, just like for me, like I have had to use my inhaler more this year than I ever have before. Like, I just think me like, too. It's like it's like getting fucked. Um, and yeah, that shit is expensive also. So kind of moving away to from fire to water. <laughs> uh, <laughs> I don't know. I'm somehow trying to make this fun, but it's obviously terrible. Your transitions are doing it for me. Thank you so much. Um, so if you weren't aware of this terror that's currently happening, uh, there is a hurricane currently uh, hitting the west coast of Florida called Hurricane Elsa. So Hurricane Elsa is the first hurricane to hit the west coast of Florida in the month of July in 95 years. It's a massive hurricane event happening earlier than the typical damaging hurricane season. This is the fifth hurricane this season, which is the earliest we've seen that many hurricanes in an extremely long time. The average date of the first hurricane of the season is August 10th. The average date of the fourth hurricane, and again, Elsa is the fifth, uh, as of this recording, she is hitting on July 7th, 2021, and, um, but typically the average date of the fourth hurricane is August 23rd. It is predicted that there will be more hurricanes this season than we've ever seen in the past. Obviously, with everything else we've talked about, this climate catastrophe disproportionately affects poor people and people of color who do not have access to protections from these types of events. For people in the Gulf especially, there is trauma rooted in... I spelled trauma wrong in this. I saw that. I love it. Trauma. Okay. I did it in all caps too. Anyway, there is trauma rooted to thousands of families needing to uproot especially from new orleans from katrina leave to stay in stadiums in houston they got moved back when there was that massive hurricane coming through houston i think it was uh hurricane maria and so there is a generational at this point trauma surrounding this only to experience another extreme weather event you know to possibly be uprooted again The real protections for people is not coming to those who cannot afford it. Instead of the state stepping in, we see disaster capitalism at play with venture capitalists buying up properties only to increase the price whenever people can move back to the area. And we're going to just talk about the Arctic because the Arctic must be talked about. Yeah, we got water, air, fire, ice and ice or is there or or is there right exactly (laughs) so finland's arctic lapland hit its hottest temperature in over a century at 92.5 degrees fahrenheit this month an extended heat wave that has been baking the russian arctic for months drove the temperature in verkoyansk verkoyansk russia 
which is north of the Arctic Circle, to 100.4 degrees Fahrenheit on June 20th. Roth Matram, a client scientist at the Danish Metrological Institute, said, quote, For a long time, we've been saying that we're going to get more extremes, like strong heat waves. It's a little like the projections are coming true and sooner than we might have thought, unquote. The warm winter and hot spring meant that the snow, usually blanketing the, the ground across much of the region, melted about a month earlier than normal. Bright white snow plays a crucial role in keeping the parts of the Arctic cool by reflecting the sun's incoming heat. Once it's gone away, dirt and plants readily soak up the heat instead. So the environmental educator in me is going to break down what this means because you know, I, I feel like I must. Uh, basically, y'all know about the greenhouse effect. The reason why our planet is livable is because our atmosphere can trap heat. But due to fossil fuel usage, it's trapping way the fuck too much heat. So basically, our planet has some things up its sleeve that can keep temperatures relatively stable. And one of those things is the ice caps. Ice reflects the sun. So think about if you've ever walked outside in bare feet on a like tan sidewalk as opposed to black asphalt. Think about how your feet burned on the asphalt and not so much on the tan sidewalk. When there's ice in consistent places around the planet, it helps reflect the sunlight back into the sky, keeping parts of our planet cool. But when that ice melts, more heat is absorbed into the planet because there's that dark dirt underneath the ice. And as more heat absorbs into the dirt, the planet heats up at, an, at a more rapid rate, creating what's known as an amplifying feedback loop. So when I was an environmental student back in 2009, uh, which it's wild that that was like over a decade ago, we often spoke about the ice caps being such an indicator for us as to how messed up things will be. And we've basically reached them and much sooner than anticipated. I think all of us have a lot of anxiety as it relates to the climate crisis. And because in the short term, we cannot guillotine the 1% who continue to profit off the death and catastrophe. It's been helpful for me to direct my energy towards building up infrastructure for vulnerable communities and having more community-led emergency units in areas most affected by this crisis. But yes, uh, as Zoe is about to get into, we have some other thoughts on how to get involved in environmental organizing. I like how you spelled my name here. Okay, can I tell you? I like it. I'll okay. take it. I will, because you know that I was trying on my laptop and it literally <laughs> would not let me do it. So I was like, whatever, I'm going to at least like leave this one exactly. that it's allowing to do. I, it doesn't work on my laptop either. I have to go insert symbol. Yeah. <laughs> rude i often have to copy and paste it and so when i, I type e into the search bar the first thing that comes up is etsy because i look at etsy all the time so it'll be like etsy and it just always makes me laugh <laughs> but anyway um yeah so thought it would be helpful to end um instead of in a whole pit of despair with maybe a pit of despair and also some things you could do to get involved <laughs> with environmental organizing specifically. Um, so the first thing I wanted to talk about is joining efforts in your area to make the power grids um, democratized or uh, public commodity. Many places in the US, as Laura was mentioning with Texas, have privatized grids, which essentially means that companies um, 
such as Con Ed and other major energy companies own the grid. And this directly relates to climate apartheid as well, since due to the distribution of shareholders, when there are weather-related blackouts and brownouts, they tend to happen in more low-income areas as more energy is funneled into the more wealthy areas. This means that when there's heat waves, energy is far more likely to be cut to those in poor neighborhoods, same as when there are blizzards or, you know, freezing issues. Um, while office buildings and hotels in rich neighborhoods continue to run with full access to air conditioning and or heat and other amenities, even if they're empty. So this, of course, makes it not about, you know, getting energy to the most people in the city or the area, but rather to the richest. And this is a very oversimplified explanation. It varies per city, per area. So I would urge you to look up exactly what the situation is, where you are, um, and to get involved with, yeah, democratizing the grid. It's a important effort to, like Julia was saying, having access to air conditioning and heat is becoming a need at this point. And so making sure, yeah, making sure that that is available to everyone and that certain people don't just have theirs cut off because of the neighborhood they live in and their income. Yeah, absolutely. And like along the same efforts of democratizing what is usually a private thing, I think putting effort into community land trusts is really cool too. There's a lot of efforts about that in different cities that you can look into. And just generally, there are often local environmental nonprofits in your area, depending on what you might be interested in. It could be around food. It could be around um, access to clean water. It could be around these power grid issues like we've been talking about. Or it could be like care services and and uh, kind of relief services for when crises events happen for like um, houseless people and things like that. Um And, you know, of course, with all types of organizations, some may be better than others, but a lot of them tend to fill this community piece that government is failing to do. And a lot of times places like that are seeking volunteers, um, which is another way that you can help in your community. Yeah, I think in that vein too, um, local things like community gardens or mutual aid funds that otherwise help, even in a small scale, just helping people in your community be able to access the basic things that they need. Yeah, so we've talked a lot about the energy industry on this episode, which is definitely one of the main industries that I think we should be targeting with direct action and, you know, just rethinking in general, like that's going to take a lot. Um, But I just wanted to mention a few other industries that are very tied into climate change. So two of the big ones are the mining industry and uh, like the meat production industry. Um, So I just want to mention that because I think there are things that you can do on like a very small individual level. And then this is also like something to think about when you're thinking about local activism in your area. Like if there's a factory farm that's going to open up like that being something to target as a climate issue. Um, But I think also just like within the mining industry that has to do with like all of the stuff that makes up like our phones and computers and technology. Um, So those are the types of things where it's like, if you can like give your used electronics to someone or donate them instead of throwing them away, um, if you can like not buy new, like a new phone every year and stuff like that, like those are all big things to be thinking about in terms of like rethinking our, our own relationships to how we consume. 
Um, and then another thing that I wanted to mention is activism around public transportation. So I think, you know, similarly, this is something where we can all kind of make different individual choices, like driving less, um, if you're flying somewhere, if it's like a short trip, is there another way you can get there? Can you like take a train or bus? Um, can you take public transit or walk or bike within your city instead of driving? Um, or if you have to drive, can you carpool? Like all those types of decisions, I think they're important both on the level of like, if we were to all do this, it would actually have an impact, but also just like showing people in your daily life that it is possible to do this. Um, and, you know, that this is something we need to be doing. I think it's kind of a, it's a good way of integrating your politics and your beliefs into your day-to-day -day life. Um, but on the broader level, like we also do definitely need bigger policy changes. Um, most people in the US do rely on driving just because of the horrible fucked up way that our cities are laid out. And so on more of like the broader activism level, I think one of the biggest things that we can do in that area is pushing for more accessible and affordable public transit. And just to be clear, what I mean by that is that public transportation should be free to <laughs> yes. users. Um, like when I say affordable, I mean free. free. Um, yes. <laughs> yes. It should be, you know, wheelchair accessible. Um, it should be accessible to people with any other mobility challenges. It should be well distributed around a city and, you know, not neglect areas that have more poor working class folks. Um, and there should not be cops on it, obviously you're listening to season of the bitch. Um, <laughs> but, you know, I like this isn't like a simple or quick fix, like changing the literal infrastructure of a city is very difficult and takes a lot of time and work. But I do think this is just something that we should at least all be supporting at every opportunity we can to expand public transit and fund it and try to rely less on cars. Yeah, totally. Um, I like completely agree with all of that. And I also just need to mention that. So I feel like many of us when we were in college or whenever took these things of like, what is your carbon footprint? And it like asks you all these questions. And it's like, what do you use for transportation? All these things, whatever. The carbon footprint was invented by Exxon, basically as a way to offset uh, what they knew to be their fault onto individuals. Um, because, you know, Exxon very infamously knew about climate change. They had scientists on their staff. Um, and so while, yes, I absolutely think there are individual things we can do to assist in this, I, I feel as someone who has, like, quickly become much more disabled as well uh, in it, with with my own mobility issues and different things like that. Uh, and someone who is raised Catholic, I have to like also remember to not like hold all the guilt of climate catastrophe on your shoulders. And I, I that's not what I thought you were saying to be clear, Julia. Um, yeah, no, totally. I thank you for bringing that up. Cause I think it's like, it's a hard dichotomy, but I feel like it is important to, it's like remembering that we are not responsible for these things at all. And it's like completely the fault of these horrible oil executives and all of that. And there is a limited amount that we can do to fix it. But also we can make individual choices that like 
do something and it you know yeah totally it's it's yeah tough yeah I mean also definitely a difference between like the things Julia was suggesting versus green capitalism which is just like here plastic is destroying the ocean we'll sell you a $50 metal water bottle yeah um, of course so you know there's levels but yeah of course as Laura said the, the carbon footprint idea specifically is just like let's make people feel like this is their fault even though we know it's our yes. fault yeah <laughs> truly so and in that way I would like to say that any anti-war effort you can throw yourself into is actually an environmental project because the U.S. military is the number one polluter in the world. So any anti-war efforts we dive into are inherently uh, that way. So if you want to, if you want to like decrease the carbon emissions, the number one way to do that is by getting the U.S. military to fucking stop doing the shit that it's doing. Can we just quickly address in that vein the time where Liz Warren said what we needed to do was have green military uh, that, equipment? In that oh moment, I I truly, I like, there. you know, obviously for those of us that were like, none of us are here for, for electoral politics, but like, I think a lot of us were like, well, if not Bernie, I guess Liz Warren's fine. And then that happened and I was like, this shit is <laughs> fucked up. Like, we just can't <laughs> fuck everyone. Solar powered tanks. Yeah. Oh, my God. It's like in a dark <sighs> way, it's almost like convenient that it's like all the things we're fighting are just so interlinked that it's like, yeah, you know, your anti-war effort is also a climate effort because the and, world is fucked right. and all of these things rely on each other anti-imperialist like capitalism as the root uh just keep fucking fighting the powers that be as much as you can <laughs> yes in whatever way you can um if you want to support defunding the military and lighting cop cars on fire with fireworks um <laughs> or, you know not but you know whatever really just to be clear that is a that. joke for legal reasons <laughs> um but if you want to support all of that you can give us money on patreon at patreon.com slash season of the bitch um if you throw some money our way you can join our Discord, um, which you might need to do to talk to us about your feelings after this episode, and we will be uh, chatting with folks about that. We also have a reading group. We're reading Braiding Sweetgrass right now, which is very in line with what this episode is about. So if you enjoyed it, maybe check that out. You can also follow us on Twitter and Instagram at Season of the Bee. Email us, seasonofthebee at gmail.com. Visit our website, seasonofthebee.com. And wherever you're listening to us, do whatever the good thing is on that. Give us a five-star rating or like it or whatever the kids are calling it these days. All right. That's all. Love y'all. Love you. Bye. Season of the Bitch.